This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. You're listening to the Impact Theory Podcast, your source of empowering ideas and actionable techniques from the world's highest achievers. Join host Tom Bilyeu, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of the billion-dollar brand Quest Nutrition, on a journey to unlock your potential and realize your vision of success. Welcome to Impact Theory. What is up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of After Impact. I am your host, Tom Bilyeu, and I am here with the immeasurably talented Agent Smith. Mr. Bilyeu. What is up, dude? How's it going? It is going very well, my friend. You've done the equivalent of a marathon in Q&A <laughs> over the last week. Yeah. Because if people don't know, he's done a 24-hour live Impactathon, which yes. was last Wednesday, 24 hours of Q&A. And then you were in London because, you know, you hop on a plane to London right after Why that. Not? Yeah. And you do nine hours of Q&A at a meetup. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll be honest, like, I actually feel it in my throat. Yeah. So I can hear it. Like I'm, I don't know if people that don't know my voice as well as I know it can tell, but yeah, it's like a little gravelly and weird. And I woke up, so not the, the first bit of sleep that I got post 24 hour impactathon was on the plane on the way to London. I didn't feel anything after that. But then the next night when I woke up, I had the worst headache, but it was emanating from like the roof of my mouth, which is, yeah, that like is strange. It was very weird. So at first I didn't make the connection, but then like, as I tried to talk, I found that it was actually, I was having to really like push. So I thought, well, this will be interesting doing the Q and A and then the clock, the nine hour Q and A was, which by the way, Anybody watching this that was there in London at the Q&A, thank you so much. That was amazing. Like, it was, dude, it was legit. Because there was seating and everything, and it wasn't like standing where people sort of get a bit fidgety. Yeah. There were a lot of people that stayed. And the final group, because there's always like one core group that stays like until literally we're just sort of standing around uh -huh. and nobody has any more questions. Um, there was, I don't know, like I think 12 people made it outside so by then we'd probably already been going for, I don't know, six or seven hours. And then it dwindled That's down crazy. until there was, I think, probably five or six people that finally like, okay, if there's no more questions, I'm going to tap well, out and go home now. kudos to you for the endurance. Well, kudos to this community, dude. It was, it was just amazing. It was yeah. such, A, the 24-hour, man, that there were people that watched that whole thing. I yeah. did not expect that. I'll be really honest with you. Cage. Cage, Cage hits. hits. In the house. 30 yeah. plus hours up watching every hour of the 24-hour impactathon and spotting all the easter eggs which yeah. if i'm honest i thought no one's gonna get yeah this. I, thought, I don't know how long it's gonna take people i thought it would end up being collective like they'd yeah. have to get together and be like okay i saw three and they were so subtle yeah and he he had all of them it, it was, was amazing amazing. amazing within like an hour after we yeah. stopped it was bonkers it was crazy so yeah all right well we should probably dive into let's dive into after it impact real quick before we do that uh, we have a couple people who won prizes during our impactathon but have not come forward to claim them yet really so i'm going to see wow. if maybe they're listening to this um devon healy won a uh, tools of titans book so devon if you're out there uh send an email to connected impact theory we'll make sure that gets to you and christy ratliff won um, some it swag nice so all right let us know we'll come forward get your goodies please come forward uh, welcome everyone to After Impact. Today we're live on Facebook and YouTube. Oh, so, snap. Even I didn't know that. Yeah, so Amazing. welcome YouTubers. Um, feel free to put your comments in the comments box, uh, your questions that you have for Tom about this episode. Hopefully you've watched it. If you haven't, I'll give you a quick background on Bassem Youssef. He is known as the John Stewart of Egypt. And he is a comedian, writer, actor, physician, physician turned actor and comedian, which we'll get into. The usual mix. Yeah, of course. That's a common trajectory. 
Um, he hosted a satirical news program called The Show from 2011 to 2014 in Egypt. And this is during the Egyptian Revolution of 2011 and then all of the regime changes that happened thereafter. Uh, and he had death threats on his life because of the show that he was doing, which was unprecedented at that time. Um, and he has also been named since then one of the 100 most influential people in the world. Just a very interesting person. So if you haven't seen the episode, check it out and dig into his world. We'll kick it off with a question. Ah, before we do, if this is providing value to you, please share it on Facebook. Don't think you can share it on YouTube yet. Maybe you can. If you can, do it. Um, <laughs> helps us grow our community, which is what we're trying to do right now, is reach more people with this content and help them change their lives. So first question is, it's, we'll get into how humble he is, but yeah. I, I want to talk about how in the very beginning of the episode, he's telling the story of how he got involved in making the show. And mm -hmm. he very quickly glosses over the fact that when the revolution started, he went into the streets to help people who were hurt. Yeah. He said, I just joined other doctors to go help people like that decision alone is a big one, right? Yeah. I'm sure not every doctor was out there helping people. He was putting himself in danger. What do you think motivated him at that time? And where do you think he draws his courage from? Oh, man. So this is sort of my fantasy question because I want to talk about him without the self-deflection that mm. he does so eloquently in the episode. And look, I get it. Like, he's, he's a really humble guy. And as you peel the layers, you realize in his mind, like, he equates suffering with, like, heroism. So mm. because he only ended up in exile, which by the way, seems pretty gnarly to me. Yeah. Um, but he didn't end up in prison for years. Like some of the other people, like he just can't allow himself to say that what he did was heroic. And I fully get that. But from the outside, to me, the heroism has to do with risk more than it has to do with outcome. And he took catastrophic risks. Like it was crazy when you really dive into how much he made himself sort of the figurehead for people that were standing up to what was going on, right. he was like the lightning rod. Now that ended up protecting him a little bit and I think that's why he didn't go to prison like some of the other people, but it, it certainly made him the target. So when he decides that he's gonna go out into the streets and help people, uh, I, you're right, already that's like real physical danger. People are, I mean, tanks are rolling up there. I can't remember how many people were killed, but there were a lot of people killed during this time. And there were people getting injured every day. There were people dying every day. I mean, it was really pretty crazy. Yeah. And I think that some part of him, and he talks about this in the episode, but he said, you know, you really do, like, you live, let's say, 30, 40 years with a regime, nothing's changing. There's no sense of hope whatsoever. And you just put your head down. And I think he really wanted to be a part of what was going on. And as the, you know, the uprising really began to sweep through, I think there were people that, in him being one of them, were very aware that this was history in the making. And so he wanted to be a part of that. He wanted to be in the mix. And he had started to go out the day that it kicked off. And his wife was like, you literally just had a baby two weeks ago or something. And she's like, there's no way you're going out into the streets right now. But by the next day, he just could not contain himself. He had to be a part of what was going on. And I, that's a really interesting trait in people in general. I think there are just some people that are so aware that something momentous is happening that they want to go feel that energy and be a part of it. And then when they get there, realizing that they really want to be of use. And it, I don't think we talked about this in the episode, but in the research, I saw him talk about it. At first, he tried being one of the people hurling rocks and stuff like that. And he ended up hitting somebody on, on, on his own his side. Own side. Yeah. And so he was like, yeah, I'm going to stick to helping people who have been injured rather than create more injuries. And he's, he's a really fascinating mix of a human being, of being a heart surgeon, wanting to help, and really finding his way of helping. And I hope people really do go research him more because we just weren't able to cover everything in the episode. But that, like, even that decision was, was intimately him, right? To not throw rocks, to not be one of the sort of violent revolutionaries, but to facilitate it in the way that his skill set allowed. Yeah, and it was really insightful of him to go and do that. And just bring it to the tactical for our audience. What, what's a way, let's say, in another scenario where someone's trying to find a way to help, right? Maybe help another business, maybe help a cause. Like, How do you assess what your strengths are and then find out how to apply them? 
Wow, that's a great question, especially because for anybody watching this in the future, this is all happening right now as Houston is essentially sinking. Yeah. Um, and I've thought about that. Like, I got reached out to by one of our community members, and he was like, please, like, go ask people to, to donate or do something. And I just thought, how do I connect to that in, like, a real authentic way where I'm not just, like, telling people to go do something, but then I'm not doing anything because I don't even know, like, how to connect right, to that. Right. Like, because so here's how... I would do it, and I am literally processing this out loud. So, what is my skill set? My skill set is being able to motivate and inspire, but I do that by leading from the front. So, like, I'm super uncomfortable talking about something and motivating people to do something that I'm not doing. Yeah. So, for me, like, if I were going to do this, it would be okay. My my skill set is a willingness to suffer. Um, like when something aligns with my goals to go out and just really fucking dive in, go hard, uh, be willing to break myself in half to do that. So in a moment like that, like if there was an alignment for me, it would be to go out and do that, work hard like he did, right? To go out and know like the, the correlate isn't exact because he's literally a surgeon. And so right. the, the obvious answer to help in a time of revolution where people are getting injured is you go and you say, okay, my skill set is I can repair these people. Right. You go, you help, you try to create like this um, God, moment of healing because he would, he would help people from either side, mm. right? So it wasn't even that he was picking a side in that. He was trying to show like the compassion and all of that. And then watching him, and I know that I'm going sort of far afield from what you asked, but this is helping me process it. So he starts with just sewing people back up. But then as he, as the revolution continues and it stretches out and he and his friend are creating this satirical show, he realizes on the web first, he realizes that he can actually go document it and bring um, something useful from the revolution in that way. And he's, so he faces what would be, I'm sure, quite terrifying, faces that fear, goes into the middle of it, is interviewing people, trying to make light of it, trying to help them laugh, to overcome some of the fear. So it really, you see him identify the two different skill sets that he has and then go bring those to bear. So it's, it's really fascinating. The only way for me, I think, to meaningfully do something in Houston would literally be to put everything on hold here, to fly out there and to lead from the front in that way and then come back and talk about it. And that's why I have balked at saying anything because sure. I am not comfortable unless it's I was there, I was doing it, you know, I'm in the thick of it and all that. And yeah, so being honest about what's real for you, I think is, is super important to be incredibly authentic. And so to draw the parallel back to the episode, him throwing the rock was not authentic, right? That's not him, but him like really helping people that are in physical distress. That really is him, him trying to find people, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. help people find a way to laugh in the midst of fear. That really is him, right? So that's him sort of clicking into that authentic way to yeah. do something. And so that's, I think people really have to like forget like what the world wants you to do and really think about like what is real and authentic for me and then engage in that. And that isn't easy. Yeah. Like one, because I think people get into judging themselves because they think they should be the way that the world is saying this is like the appropriate way to handle this and they get caught up there. But if you can get past that, identify the way that feels right, do that and just contribute in that way. Yeah, it's interesting too. It reminds me of, and I think this is from Barking Up the Wrong Tree, which I'm reading now uh, by Eric Barker, but correct me if I'm wrong because you've read it as well. Um, he, he talks about how Toyota was sending its employees um, as part of a program to go help out at soup kitchens and food banks every year. And then they decided that there would be a better way for them to help. And they sent their engineering team in Thank and had you. them break down yes. like the processes. And, in, you know, they were going from packing boxes of canned foods in 11 seconds to like 0.6 seconds or something. Or um, their soup kitchen was feeding X amount more people because they were able to just do everything more efficiently. And that was a really that was fascinating. It was a great example of applying the skills that you have. I'm so glad you brought that up. So this is something that is like a stoic um, philosopher concept that um, Dr. Drew talked about in his episode. And he said, he literally used the example of a soup kitchen. And he's like, it is not going to bring you much 
sense of fulfillment to go to a soup kitchen and label soup, ladle soup, because anybody can do that. Yeah. He said, what you need to do is find something that's called technique. What is that skill that you're good at? And then bring it to bear. Just like Bassam was doing when he was sewing people up, just like he was doing when he was interviewing people. And, and literally, as I think through how I could be useful in something like that, it would literally be bringing awareness to people that did something in that event to bring them on mm -hmm. to extract like that process that they like that's actually me bringing my technique like just going and i'm not going to be better at rescuing people from a, you know a water disaster or anything like i don't have an efficiency in that so the way that toyota came in and said okay look we can throw sort of people at this but that's not we're not engaging our technique what are we really great at what and if i had to guess the translation of technique is literally like technical skill yeah. right what is that thing um that you've spent a long time getting good at that now is advantageous for people this is why i open every show with that notion right that you're going to acquire a certain set of skills that can be of service to something bigger than yourself so that is such a cool example of them. Like their heart was in the right place from the moment they were ladling soup. But thankfully somebody said, like, we're really not bringing the full weight of what we know how to do. Right. And I, tapping into that is super important. Really important. Definitely. Very, very glad you brought that up. All right, we got a couple questions from the audience. And just a reminder, we're here on Facebook and YouTube Live. Welcome everyone. This is After Impact, the show where we unpack the impact. Oh, from Bassam <laughs> Yusuf, who is uh, this week's episode. Um, you're joining us. You can ask questions in the comments and uh, we will answer them. This oh, we actually have a couple comments from YouTube. This is exciting. Nice. All right. This question is from, and I'm going to struggle with the name here, um, Zena, Zena Barbosa. I, oh, I, think. I wanted that to be Warrior Princess. Yeah. I really did. Zena. Um, Hey Tom, what do you think comedy, or why do you think comedy is such a powerful thing? And what's your opinion on Bassem Yusuf and his plans to promote a vegan diet? Wow, okay. Uh, Two different questions. Yeah, all over there. Yep. Um, so one, I found it fascinating that, that Bassem, at the beginning of the show, if anybody's watching closely, he says it's totally ineffective. Like humor won't help you. That yeah. satire is not the way out of this problem. And I found that against ideology. Right. Yeah. I found that really, really interesting. And there was such a sense of like defeat, like really think about what he went through. So he's a heart surgeon. He's doing well, does a YouTube show, blows up overnight, goes on TV, literally becomes like a lightning rod face of this entire revolution. Crazy. I mean, that, that's so life altering and it happens so fast. Where his own family's turning against him, he's getting death threats, like all of it, like just talk about a radical, radical change. So you get like, and then by the way, in the end, it feels like he did nothing, like a new regime comes in and they kick him off TV and, and the world just goes on. Right. And other than the changes that he made to media feels like I didn't really do anything, which for anybody watching what we're doing, and I hope they watch closely, it's like, that's my fear right, that will make all this amazing content, but it just won't really matter. Mm -hmm. And so my hope is that the social commentary and social content married with traditional narrative, which has never happened before, like that will allow us to really like make it stick. But like I share his concerns. But then by the end of the episode, he basically says, you can't be afraid and laughing at the same time. And so I really believe that comedy is like the answer. And I was like, what, what, what? Like I had whiplash from... It, it doesn't help. It's, you know, I'm really blunt about that. It's not useful. And then it's the only real weapon we have. And I think they're both true. Mm -hmm. And I, and I think that's why, like, he doesn't have a sense of whiplash in saying them both. And in the one hand, it, in the short term, in an acute solution, it isn't right. It's not an acute solution that it, it is really something that takes a very long time and really has to change at a cultural level, which is certainly what I hope happens with what we're doing, that it's a very long process. You know, when you look at how long Disney has been out, what they've been doing, I mean, it's going on a hundred years now. It's, th this is a long time frame kind of thing Yeah. to really change sort of the cultural subconscious. Cause it is by nature, a generational change. Um, and then for him to be like, but at the same time, it is a powerful tool because of that ability. So if you look at it in the acute, you're going to feel hopeless. If you look at it in the long term, I think there's really something there. And I think that 
using comedy as a, a weapon to constantly like erode its position as ideology is really, really important. And he says, you're never going to find, I can't remember the word he used, a dictatorship or something. He didn't use that word, but you get the idea that you're, you're never going to have an authoritarian government that allows um, satirical comedy aimed at them because it, yeah. it does like you can't, did you watch um, guardians of the galaxy Two? No. All right. Not a spoiler alert by any means, but this is something in the movie. So if you're a super purist and you haven't seen it, stop. Um, there's a, a villain in there called Taserface, and he's about to kill this guy. And to get him to stop from killing him, he starts making fun of his name because that makes all of his other people like take him less seriously. And I thought that's actually pretty real. Like it's funny how it can rob you of your power when other people look at you as being ridiculous. So nothing mm -hmm. has changed. Like you have the same abilities that you had 30 seconds ago, but now that nobody like is feeling your power, your power actually diminishes. So it's pretty fascinating. And I thought that was a really great example of the power of satire. If people are laughing at the government and they're not taking them as seriously, it really, if you could do that consistently, it really would over time erode it. Okay, that's enough on that. Um, what do I think about his push for a vegan diet? I'm not a vegan. I don't encourage a vegan life only because I've never fully explored it. So I don't know from people that I really respect from a health and longevity perspective are not behind a vegan diet fully. Now, as I experiment more and more with a higher vegetable intake, I can see that there probably are real advantages to that. Mm -hmm. But I worry about dogma in food as much as I worry about dogma in any ideological form. So um, I found it very interesting that that's like a big push for him because it, it felt so out of left field. But I guess it harkens back to what he's doing as uh, what he was doing as a surgeon. Like, obviously, that's something that's very, very important to him. Um, so I'll be interested to see like where he goes with that and how much of a passion he really has for it and whether mm -hmm. he's going to push it across the finish line or not. Um, I think that the way people eat is the cause of so much, so many problems in life. Um, I just don't know that a vegan diet is the answer. So I will say that I'm prepared to be pretty dogmatic about sugar. Um, so if that were his message, like I'd be all about it. So I think he's probably swung a little too hard in one direction. Um, so, you know, but his intentions are right. They're good. He wants to make sure people are living a healthier lifestyle. He seems to be a person that can rise above dogma. So I, my gut is if he were presented with evidence that made him go, okay, it has a place, but not necessarily where everyone should live all the time. I think he would move to that nice. more moderate position. So, all right. Um, let's talk about ideology a little bit, which was a big um, topic in this episode. Um, so Bossom does say that he doesn't feel that satire can uh, overcome ideology and ideology trumps facts all the time. You guys go into depth on that, which I think is fascinating. So if you haven't seen the episode, check that out. What role um, do you think that ideology plays today in people's lives? Wow. Where do you really want to go with that? Like, what's your secret hope? Are you secretly hoping that we go in on like political stuff or not necessarily political? I, I would like you to talk about because um, I know you've you've spoken about this a lot that you know ideology is is everywhere and is how people make a lot of decisions. So mm -hmm. and and part of what I think the mission of impact theory is is to promote a certain type of ideology. No question. Right? So a little bit about why it's so important to you how you think it is influencing people today and where we are today. Okay, so um, let's start, let's define where I think ideology gains its power. So this is one of those words that I did not understand for a very long time. Do you know what a heuristic is? Uh, a heuristic is a thing that allows you to interpret. It's like a tool that allows you to shorthand interpret something. Yes. Okay. It's a rule of thumb. Yeah. So why people gave it the super fancy name heuristic, I'm not sure. And why they don't just say a heuristic is literally a rule of thumb. I'm also not sure. Um, so a heuristic is a rule of thumb. It's something that allows you to very rapidly like process data, know how to respond. Okay. So we all have these rules of thumb. Now, 
that's where ideology gains its power. It allows you to take a very big, complicated world and boil it down to something very easy to understand, to know how to react to, to know which way to go. It's the filter mm -hmm. by which you live. It's why I think everybody needs ideology. I think you need a code of ethics or whatever you wanna call it, but it's that thing that allows you to filter out the world. So when like things get, um, and, and you see this with money all the time, so let's just talk about money. So um, companies spiral out of control with being um, parasitic towards the, uh, certainly before social media came along. Um, it's, it is it's such a slippery slope, like to make a choice based on profit instead of value, right? Cause you're mm -hmm. like, well, does it, does it diminish my value proposition enough to justify the decrease in profitability, right? So it's like, it's always like these little choices, little choices until over time you're like fucking Enron and you're just doing all these like yeah. crazy things. And I like to think that like, in fact, it's way more interesting to look at Enron and go, they weren't sinister. That it was just like a bunch of these little choices, little choices, little choices it's about the culture, too. right? It's way more terrifying. Yeah. So it's just little choices about like wanting to protect yours and do great things for the pit. Like I imagine that this horrific end result started with them like wanting to build shareholder value, who they saw as being on their team, right? So it's us versus them and they wanted to build something up for their team and they wanted to protect their employees and they wanted to look good themselves and and then all these little choices without a code of ethics or maybe they have one but it's they didn't realize like how it's just set up to create a disastrous result in the end like they don't see how that's going to exacerbate and amplify over time so but it allowed them to like make the decision so they know like their code allowed them to mess with the um, the accounting, right? So when you have like a hard and fast bright line, like I do that, which, right? So I do that, which brings value to my customer. I do that, which brings value in the long run to my shareholders and, uh, making sure that the company is in a good position in the long run, like, and then understanding like, what does that mean? So let's take it back to quest. Everything was driven by, is it metabolically advantageous period? And we were very okay with, okay, we may go out of business, but we're not going to do anything that isn't metabolically advantageous. And our um, bet was that in the long run, that was going to be better for us. And meaning that we would gain more customers, people would see that it was real, that we would be long-term reputation protective, right? So there were just all these things that came into the code. And so there were stuff that people were like, what are you guys doing? Because from a business perspective, in the short term, it just didn't make sense because yeah. it was so much less profitable. We were choosing more expensive ingredients. But we were doing, we were saying, okay, well, metabolic truth, metabolic reality is like our our highest value, it sits above profitability. So that was our heuristic, that was our rule of thumb, that was the ideology that let us like really go. And another piece of the ideology was community, we're all about community, celebrating transformation, right? So those become the the like just rules of thumb, The you're in the midst of a storm, you have to make a decision quickly. Do you have ideology that lets you make those fast decisions? So speed is I think really, really important. Now you get into the terrifying part of ideology is when identity gets caught up in it. And so it's like my identity is tied to, and I talk a lot about being congruent with your identity. So if somebody is a supporter, like just to keep it nice and easy to talk about to a Western audience, and I'll let you substitute whatever uh, thing you want. He's talking about, Bassam is talking about in Egypt, it was people were fiercely loyal to the military, fiercely loyal. Yeah. And there was just all this generational stuff around the military was our protector, our savior, all he this. He says that it was almost its own religion. Oh, he said it's bigger than religion, yeah. which is so bizarre to hear from what I think of as such a devout um, country. So for him to say, look, the, people were okay when I was making fun of religion, they freaked out when I started making fun of the military. That's so Crazy. anathema to us in the US yeah. that it's like, what? So when he says that like, you know, you, you really can't mess with that because it is people's identity. They're, they believe the statements that they say about this, the military is our savior. They're the ones that are going to protect us. The rest of the world is after us. Like you put yourself out there because you're making statements like that. And if you've been saying for the last 30 years, like whatever a military dictator has been in power, like this is good for us and we should be listening. And you've taught your kids that. And then all of a sudden somebody says, 
anybody that does that is an idiot. Whether they come out and say it outright or they just make fun of, it, it hits your sense of identity. And this is why like I, I talk about like, what is that fundamental thing that you build your, your self-esteem and your identity around? Because that thing matters. And if that thing is something that's fragile like that, that, oh, I put all my trust and faith in this person and I've been telling everybody they're good, they're right. Well, what happens when they do something stupid, right? So that's why I've always tried to build my identity around identifying the right answer. Like, what's that thing that's going to move me towards my goals? Being a learner, being willing to change, admit when I'm wrong. Because now there's no damage to my identity, my sense of self, my self-esteem when I go, oh, I was wrong. In fact, it bolsters my self-esteem. I feel sure. better about myself for being able to admit that I was wrong. And that's huge. But just to wrap it up in a bow, that's what happens with ideology, right? Is when you have it, it empowers you. You can make fast decisions. You know who to say yes to, who to say no to, who to vote for, right? It all clicks into your, your heuristic, your rule of thumb, that thing that gives you the, where it's not mentally taxing to make all these decisions. Like even think about this, I'm a Democrat, I'm a Republican, right? That's ideology, it's identity. It gives you something to say, oh, well, who's the Democratic candidate or who's the um, Republican candidate? I, I, I just vote for them because that's my identity, that's who I am. So that's how it gains so much momentum. And then, I mean, if you really, I'll stop myself, but like his whole thing about fear and how fundamental that is for people, then that you tie that with it also being a heuristic, also being your identity, and it like taps into fear, and now you just get, you get a wall of human reaction that I would never wanna be up against. You guys know I have a very strict diet that I stick to, except for very special occasions, and I do that so that I can bring my best every day to what I'm doing, and a big part of that strict diet is high-quality animal protein and my go-to source of trustworthy meats and seafoods with no added hormones or antibiotics ever is ButcherBox. ButcherBox is a premium meat subscription service that delivers 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork-raised, crate-free, and wild-caught seafood all directly to your door. I cannot recommend ButcherBox enough. When you eat ButcherBox, you are giving your body the best possible building blocks to work with so you can reach your full potential. You've got to take care of yourself at a cellular level if you want to hit your peak consistently. So ButcherBox is the key. Sign up at butcherbox.com impact and get our special deal. ButcherBox is off Offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. And that means you can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash impact and use code impact to choose your free for a year offer plus get $20 off your first order. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You will never be able to reach your full potential if you are riddled with stress and have a lot weighing on your mind. I can tell you from my own experiences with stress and negative thought loops, you have to find a way to work through whatever it is that's weighing on you if you're gonna have any hope of achieving your goals. Therapy can be an option for working through things and for an online therapy option that is super convenient and flexible, be sure to check out BetterHelp. With BetterHelp, everything is 100% online and getting started is quick and easy. A brief questionnaire matches you with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no extra charge. Get things off your chest, process through things with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash impact theory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash impact theory. In today's highly unpredictable and rapidly changing world, the smartest move you can make from a financial standpoint is to actually understand how money works and how markets move. Because if you want to have any chance of investing your money wisely and growing your financial portfolio, you have to make a profit. And the only way that you're going to do that is either by setting and forgetting or actually understanding what's going on at a macro level. So whether you're a seasoned investor or someone looking for extra guidance, today's sponsor, Yahoo Finance, has got you covered with all the tools, data, and news that you need in one place to grow your knowledge base around what is happening in the world of finance and to make sure that you have the right goals and you're executing well. 
Yahoo Finance makes it easy to consolidate your accounts so you can effectively and efficiently manage your entire portfolio. Personally, I love how straightforward their platform is to use. It is very simple to get the information that I need. And Impact Theory's own chief financial officer is exactly the same, spending time helping me frame exactly what is going on from a global perspective so that I'm making the smartest decisions that I can. I definitely recommend that you check out Yahoo Finance for comprehensive financial news and analysis. Visit the incredible brand that so many great investors use at yahoofinance.com. It's the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Once again, guys, head there now, yahoofinance.com. Yeah, and what about people, you know, I think this happens too, is when you are um, unconsciously holding on to an ideology, you're not aware of the ideology that you're participating in. What do you do then? How do you become aware of that which you're unaware, right? There is an answer, and it goes like this. Your subconscious speaks to you through emotion, and it will give you clues that something is very, very wrong. And usually that clue comes in the form of wanting to avoid something, being instantly and noticeably agitated or uncomfortable, and this is why I say don't trust your emotions. And maybe the better thing is to identify what is driving this. Because it is your subconscious trying to tell you something. Mm -hmm. So when it makes you, une like I, one of the first lessons I learned about my anxiety, my anxiety kicks in when I go out of my lane and I no longer know like really what I'm talking about. And that's why you'll hear me like, there are some things I'll say with absolute fucking conviction, I have no problem because like it is so real and true for me. And then other times I'll be like, hey, we're now at the edge of my understanding, right? Yeah. Like I'll, I'll caveat that because that lets my anxiety then drops back to zero. Cause I'm like, okay, I've told people that like, I'm going to process out loud, like, and then hopefully you get some value out of that. Um, but I now am no longer in a place where like, or I've now crossed over into a place where I won't be surprised if I contradict myself or if um, I'll say it today, but say something exactly the opposite tomorrow because I'm, I'm really building my thinking around this. Um, so that's just one example of myriad that we could go through where it's your subconscious, which can process a lot more data and a lot faster, faster and vaster, as they say, mm -hmm. um, telling you something. But you have to do the work to like really figure it out. And most people don't do that work. They trust the emotion. They act on the emotion. They let the agitation take them over. And so they act agitated. They push back. They fight against something. And then in getting out of that situation by pushing back and fighting and you know whatever they do, then the emotion begins to dissipate because they've removed themselves from that situation. Uh, and because it dissipates, they never stop to go, hmm, like... Why did I react like that? Mm -hmm. What's driving that? Mm -hmm. Can I identify it? Can I do the meditative, excuse me, work? And I think it probably needs to be meditative because you just have to create enough quiet and calm to actually hear the little whispers of like, it. I think it's tied to this, right? And that's how those like little gut instincts bubble up. But if you're caught up in the grips of the emotion, you literally can't hear it. That's great. Thank you. First ways. All right, we have a question from Facebook. This is from Muhammad Adu. He says, can you draw and say everything with satire? And when does satire become something quite different than its purpose? Um, well, I think that's probably a better question for Bossum. And this is one where if I tried to answer with a lot of authority, I would get anxious about mm. uh, because I, uh, I don't satire is not my weapon. Yeah. Right. So I don't I don't really know where the edges of that are. Um, I think it's pretty interesting that uh, two of the the greats in satire have both recently bowed out being Bassam Yusuf and Jon Stewart, because I don't think they feel like. And I am, I'll answer very specifically because this is exactly what Bassam said, that he wasn't doing enough to stay and risk everything, right? And yeah. I think maybe if he believed that by staying and doing it, he could really change the world or even just because one of the things that occurred to me was, well, you could make it here in the US and like through YouTube, you could essentially broadcast it in Egypt. So he could still reach that fan base, but he doesn't. I think he doesn't because... He doesn't believe that it's doing enough, at least not in the acute, like I was talking about before. So 
Judging by that, I would say that definitively there are edges to its usefulness. I'm not the guy to, to figure out what those are. Fair enough. Uh, all right. I just want to remind everyone we are live on Facebook, live on YouTube, and I've just been told we have 187 people watching on YouTube. Whoa. Yeah. That's big. That's big. Nice. Thank you. Man, YouTube. YouTube coming in full force. Love that. Uh, we are here doing After Impact. This is a show where we unpack the impact. And we're talking about... <laughs> we got we to trademark that, I think. <laughs> yeah, TM. Uh, we're talking about Bassem Youssef, which is uh, his episode aired yesterday. If you haven't caught it, check it out. We're also on a podcast, so if you prefer that uh, medium, then you can check it out on your commute home, listen to it. Uh, ask your questions here, and if you are finding value, please share this content. I want to completely switch gears now and Still. talk about building a media company in the middle of a place that has no infrastructure for media. Yeah, And uh, that was really fascinating to hear him say, like, we had nothing. There, there was no one who knew what they were doing. We had to kind of learn ourselves and learn our own. And I want to see, you know, have you talk about that. And um, are there any similarities to what you were doing building Quest Nutrition? Oh, wow. Um, it's utterly fascinating what they did. And if you watch the documentary Tickling Giants, you really get a glimpse of like how hard that must have been for them. And that's the thing he's most proud of. Like looking at his accomplishments, I'm like, uh, that wouldn't even like make my radar of things to be proud of. Sure. Um, but like that really resonated with him. And that I found that so interesting. Like here's a guy who stood up to a government that was killing people in the streets on like a daily basis. And I was very, very sad that we, and I don't know why, and this is something I wanna to talk to the team about in the Monday meeting, but we didn't show clips of some of the stuff that he did in this episode. And so like I talked about, he, they arrested him because he wore this really big hat making fun of the president. And when he turned himself in, dude, he wore the fucking hat again. Like, really think about that. They are arresting you because you wore the hat. You may go to prison and do you, like, in any way, shape, or form, sort of try to lower the, um, the tensions, or do you ratchet that shit up by wearing the hat again? Like, I, I've, uh, it's very in your face. I couldn't believe it. I was like, come on. Like, now you're just, like, really provoking people. And this is in a time where people are, are being killed, dude. This is not like some time of peace, you know? It'd be one thing to do it here in the US. It's a whole nother to do it in Egypt, like in this very tumultuous time. Yeah. And despite that, this guy, what he's proud of is the fact that he could broadcast live on Facebook uh, and get a live audience in. Like I was, I was just really, really blown away by that. And it goes to show like, when you have to push through something, when you acquire skills, the level of like fulfillment that you have for fighting through something, for, for gaining skills and then finding that a use for that skill set that really has utility. There are few things that are more meaningful than that. They obviously did a great job. One of the things that I really, really loved because, and this is the direct parallel with what we did at Quest. In the beginning, he said, I didn't hire people that knew what they were doing because there wasn't anybody that knew what they were doing. We pulled this off because we found people that were passionate. And that was exactly what we did at Quest. We didn't know how to manufacture. We didn't hire people that knew how to manufacture. We hired a bunch of hardcore hustlers and we all figured it out together. And it was that willingness to like just push and do it and go hard, like to get better and to not stop. And I, I've told this story before, but I remember the time that at 2 a.m. we on a Friday night, we were trying to figure out a heat coupling on the packaging machine. Come on, dude, can you imagine a worse way to spend your Friday night at 2 a.m.? But I was in such a good mood because I was like, this is why we're gonna succeed. Because in this moment, we don't find an excuse to stop, we find a way. And these cliche sayings, like people that are successful, they find a way, people that aren't find an excuse, right? It's, they're just so fucking true. Like it is so true. Like you just find a way to pull it off and you don't accept excuses and that's it. Like that's how you overcome these Herculean obstacles. It's because you just, you, you know to the core of your being, I won't stop. 
Like, I'm just going to keep going until I find an answer. There is a solution. I'm going to find it. So I love that part of his story. And yeah, that's the, the direct tie. Would you do it again that way? If you were starting from scratch, would you hire people who don't have the technical experience but are passionate? Are, are the circumstances identical to how they were? Yeah. I would do one thing differently. I would hire one person that had just a radical amount of experience. Now, the only reason we didn't is one, we didn't know what to look for. So now I would know what to look for. I know what that skill set is called. I know where to find them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but the other thing is they're expensive. Yeah. And so it, it gets very difficult because when you find somebody who's really good, what's the first thing they want to do? In fact, I really want to know if you know this. If I find somebody that really has massive experience, they're going to be very expensive, what's the first thing they want to do? And what I've seen is they want to bring in their own team. There you go. And what is their team going to be comprised of? All people who are experienced and who all have trained in the same capacity and worked together before. Correct. And they're all going to cost a fortune. Mm -hmm. And people that get really experienced, they have this and they've earned it. I get it. It holds them back and totally fucks them. But they've earned it. And that is, I've paid my dues. Mm-hmm. And so you go find that person and say, oh, by the way, I'm going to need you to be there at 2 a.m. on a Friday night to fix the heat coupling. They, they have absolutely no interest in that. So you really find yourself like in this weird conundrum where it's like, I can't afford your team. I could maybe afford you. I could throw some money at you. But now I've got to find somebody who's willing to like really roll up their sleeves and get dirty again. And most of them do not want to do it, dude. Like they climb to a certain point to like have a certain type of lifestyle to work a certain number of hours and to find people that really are prepared deep in their career where they have a ton of knowledge that they know they can monetize. Find somebody that wants to take the risk and be entrepreneurial like Good fucking luck. It, it, it's so hard. But I would, because we all have our superpowers, and mine is being able to, to paint a picture for where we're going, how we're going to get there, and that that's going to be lucrative. And you know me, like I'm a big believer in making sure other people have ownership in the company for that exact reason. Right. So, and I, yeah, so I would get one person who was total linchpin, who really understood what they were doing so that I didn't have to make as many stupid mistakes as I was making. Um, but I would still in the beginning hire an army of hustlers, but I would start, um, finding professional managers way sooner than I did. I felt such an overwhelming sense of obligation to the hustlers that I carried them beyond the point where they could feel good about what they were doing. Cause they were just so far in over their head and I wanted them all to rise and like just crush it and gain a skill set and like sell the way that I think about it, sell your twenties and your thirties for pure skills. And that just the, I'm going to say it's less than 2% of people that are prepared to do that. So 98% of the people, it was in the beginning, I gave them hope and it was beautiful and like they loved it. And, but then we were as a company just growing and learning so fast that they started then, I helped them find themselves and feel amazing and powerful. And then they started to feel stupid and it started to erode and they were getting surpassed. And uh, I, I just wasn't good enough at that time to like help them find a a great place where they could feel good about themselves in the organization or by the way, help them go somewhere else where they could be more matched for where they were and grow a little bit more slowly and at a more measured pace. So many mistakes were made and all by me. Okay. Extreme ownership. Extreme ownership. Do you think that one person could be a consultant? Yeah. Yes. Consultants can be helpful. Um, uh, I've never been a huge believer in consultants mm-hmm. only because you're going to be one of many to them mm-hmm. and they're not going to be as invested as you want. You're not going to get the kind of results usually that you would like to get. Um, so yeah, I find that people that are all the way in are way better because there's so much pain for them to not solve the problem. So when they throw like the first couple things that have worked for other people out, they tend to like back off. Yeah. And it's like, well, in my experience that works. And so they just sort of give their time and attention to the people for whom the easy bag of tricks works. Yeah. That's always very disappointing. All right. Fair enough. Reminder, we're on Facebook and YouTube live. Thanks everyone for joining us. We have about 15 more minutes. So get your questions in. We are unpacking the episode of impact theory with Bassem Yusuf. Here is a question from YouTube from screen name, that blank guy 
Tom, what are your thoughts when Bossom talks about ideology? We talked about this already, but he mentions the facts and that facts and statistics don't matter to them. How would you go about engaging with people who are of that mindset? Awesome question. I would not engage with people that are of that mindset. I am a filtering mechanism. I am not in the game of convincing people. And Bossom does an amazing job of explaining why. It's attacking people's identity. You want to talk about a business I do not want to be in. In fact, I refuse to fucking be in is the business of attacking people's identity and trying to get them to change. So my whole thing with why do I think impact theory is gonna work is because I can incept your identity. I don't have to confront it head on. And I just want you to look up to characters in movies and TV shows and all that that you love for the entertainment value. Oh, and it just starts to seep into your universe that those people have a certain belief system. And all of the heroes and all of the content that we will make, they will have either at the beginning or at the end, I was thinking about this yesterday, this will be fun for us all internally to talk about, how all of our stories are gonna tell tales of the same ideology, right? Because in my estimation, what I have seen is there's one ideology that is actually effective, and it's very nuanced and subtle, so it's not like blunt force trauma, but there's one set of ideology that will get you towards your goals no matter what your goals are. So, how do you then break that up and tell it from somebody who already has it, but you still want a story so they're not learning about it, and then somebody that's learning about it all the way. But that's how you incept people. I think hitting them head on and saying, you're wrong, it, it has this weird effect of invalidating their life going backwards. Mm. And that the way that people do that, that is such, uh, it is a damning game. It is the game of damnation. In fact, I think there's a Clive Barker book called The Damnation Game. The damnation game is... When you believe that something that forces you to change your belief system and to accept ownership and look backwards on your life and say it was in some way a failing or suboptimal or however you want to think about it, if that diminishes your sense of self, you're playing the damnation game. You are fucking yourself. Let me be really clear. Like you are doing yourself such a disservice. That's the litmus test. If you go, I have 30 seconds left to live and somebody gives me a piece of information that shows me that the way that I've lived my entire life up to that point was suboptimal, if you're then super stoked and you spend the next 30 seconds being like, oh my God, like even in my last 30 seconds, I embrace this new idea, like you were on the right path, my friends. But most people, it triggers this like domino effect of having to accept I'm a dumbass. Like that's how they look at it. Oh, I've, you've just like caused me to lose all of those years and I have to rethink of myself and I lose all my sense of pride. That's, that's what it means to attack somebody's identity, dude. No fucking way. Like that is crazy. And we've all met people in our lives that have that reaction and you can see they, they become feral. I was going to say they almost become feral. They become fucking feral. And you want to talk, I have learned that lesson so painfully because I was the dumbass proselytizer that that was so changed by this that it felt like a gift and I just wanted to give it to people and the people that I loved and I wanted to help and I'd be like no but if you just see like this will help you moving forward and you can see them getting more and more upset like right before your eyes and you're like what the fuck is happening right now and so I realized that is a losing strategy to confront somebody's identity head-on does not work except for and don't be lulled uh, into believing that it's a useful strategy by the 2% of people that already have a willingness to change. So I'm a filter trying to find those other people like me that like for whatever reason, like they just get, I am a dumbass and that's okay. And every day is about being a little less dumb and have built their identity around that. Those people are a fucking ball to be around because one, they want to share without being an asshole. And look, this was all my fault. I was not good at it. I made people feel badly, totally extreme ownership. I'm not blaming anybody but myself. But when you find people that like are really receptive, like, can I learn something from you? Like, that is awesome because then they've got a ton of stuff that you can learn from. And so you get, like when two learners meet, it's just fun. Nobody's getting emotional and reactive. It's just fun. All right. Uh, a couple quick shout outs from our friends on YouTube right now who have tuned in. Jonian Rimaka with love from Albania. Albania, thank nice. you. Uh, Joanne Zeroz, uh, I admire you a lot, Tom. I know this means nothing for you, but could you send greetings to me? Kudos from Beijing. Dude, so it's Beijing saying they Beijing. want some. All the love in the world to Beijing, and it absolutely is meaningful 
I'm actually a little horrified that people would think that that wouldn't be meaningful. So um, thank you so much for showing up, for saying what's up and what's up right back. This community, by the way, like is everything to us, which is why I have no voice because yeah. the way that we try to show our gratitude is to be of service and to be present. And the reason that when I do a speech or a Q&A session that I will stay until the last fucking question is answered is because it is so meaningful that people show up. Like, I don't take that for granted. If one person showed up, I would stay there and answer every question they had. Like, I would do, this is the fucking truth. I would do nine hours for one person if that's how long it took. Like, if I held an event and only one person showed up, I would do my nine hours for that one person. So, that's awesome. and I really believe that's why we're gonna win, by the way. Like, we're just gonna put in the work. We're gonna make people feel, feel that we give a shit. Not like, oh, he says it, like, for real, they're gonna feel it. If you encounter me 100%, I promise you're gonna feel it. And that's what I care about. That's awesome. So, Beijing, thank you. What's up, Beijing? Um, and we also have Yousaf Raza says, hi, from Pakistan. What's up, Pakistan? Dude, our, our like group, our community is insanely global. Yeah. It's crazy. It's awesome. I'm really cool. shocked. As I consider myself hard enough to understand for somebody who speaks English as their first language. So when it's like their second and third language, I just think, wowza, they speak English well. Because I'm intentionally trying to talk fast, for the record. Yeah. So I don't know You, you want to talk in 3X. Secretly, I want to talk like in 2X because okay. natural language is hard north of 2X. I meant for natural, like YouTube, I play at 2.2. Okay. So like even I like a three, it's ah, yeah. it's pretty tough. Yeah. Here's a question uh, from our YouTube audience. This is from Pankaz Joshi. Uh, hey, Tom, how does a normal person get out from a default mode of thinking? Bossom has a background as a doctor and became a television personality. Usually the common person doesn't have the guts to do things like Bossom. I'm really kind of freaked out by the question. Like there's a lot of investment in being normal, common, all that. So if you're asking the question already, like you're just in your language, I think you're way above normal. Um, so my whole thing is virtually everybody is normal. Virtually everybody is average. So like literally the distribution curve mandates that to be true. Yeah. So the vast majority of us are, are very normal, very average people. So I think that just normal people fall prey to certain cognitive biases. They fall prey to things like identity, wanting to be congruent, and they have such a hard, it, I really, really believe, this is like the secret sauce. You wanna know what separates me from all the other people out there pontificating. It is all about self-esteem. What the person builds their self-esteem around matters so fucking much, it will echo through everything they do in their life, everything. And most people build their self-esteem around something fragile. And it has to do with what are they proud of, like in themselves. And if they're proud of their ability to admit when they're wrong, to be a learner, to you know grow and adapt, then they're gonna do just fine. And Bassam has a learner's mind. He just has a learner's mind. Mm -hmm. And he's not afraid to be the low man on the totem pole. And because most people watching this don't know who he is, like for one second, Think about like the biggest celebrity in your country, the biggest celebrity in your country, not a big celebrity, the fucking biggest celebrity in your country, okay? This guy was getting 30 to 40 million viewers a night every week. That is, that's insanity. People don't get that here. I mean, those are like Seinfeld numbers, yeah. nuts. So think of the biggest celebrity in your country. And by the way, th that's Seinfeld numbers in a country with 300 million people. 350, like whatever, a huge number, much bigger than Egypt. So he's a hu the biggest celebrity in Egypt. And now he fucking takes acting classes in like Reseda, dude. And he's like twice everybody's age. Yeah. It is insane. But he said he goes and he's all in. Like he's, he's not lamenting the fact that he's not famous in the US. Like he just isn't missing a beat. This is one of those guys, like I really want, like I'm just gonna say it. I wanna be friends with Bassem Yusuf. Like, I want to be friends. This guy no is so interesting to me. Like, ah, uh, like I really want him hanging out. Yeah. <laughs> he said in the interview, he goes, I should come here every day. And if you listen, the camera wasn't on me, but I said, you have a standing invitation. Legitimately. I just want to look over and be like, Boston, what's up, dude? Yeah. Like not doing anything, but he's hanging out at the fucking crib. Right. Like this guy, more people need to know this guy because his mind is just in the right 
space. It's just in the right way. Like he's got a learner's mind. Have a learner's mind and you can escape the what you're calling sort of the fate of the normal for sure. Yeah, and with that learner's mind, he's reinvented himself over and over again. And he actually says in the episode that he feels that you've done the same. So I wanted to ask you, do you feel like that has been your path as well, reinventing yourself many times over? No question. None of it was premeditated. Um, this, for me, it all goes to what are your goals? So all of us hear a quote from something, and it immediately rings true and chills us to our core. Yes? Yes. All right. One of those quotes for me was, genius is a young man's game. Jared, I find that so unsettling because youth is the most transient thing you will ever encounter in your life. You know I want to live forever. So now I'm looking at things through that lens. Okay? So I'm like, even if I don't live forever, I think it's pretty plausible that I hit 100, 120, right? Like with the way medical science is going sure. and I have like a really good lifestyle and I work out and I take care of myself. So I think I've got a shot. Like there are already people living 120, let alone with the breakthroughs and like organ printing and all that. So you're telling me that like my first 30 years are the only years where I get a chance to really be exceptional? Like fuck that. I do not accept that. So that's one of those things that just really, really scares me. So I start looking for what are the things that allow people to really succeed later in, in life? And there's this one guy, and I, I can't remember if he's won multiple um, Nobel Prizes or if he's just been in, in consideration for them, but in multiple, like in chemistry and mathematics. And he says he intentionally, every 10 years, moves into a new field where he's not an expert. Hmm. And somebody called me out on this, by the way, in an X Prize meeting. This was so fucking awesome. And so I just want to say, Sony Mordecai, thank you. Um, we were in this, they were presenting one of the things they want to pitch as a prize at, at this upcoming event. And as the board members, we get a chance to like try to shape them in a direction that we think is more advantageous. And so these guys are talking about clean air. Like, how do we get clean air? And they had, I, I'm probably not allowed to talk about it. They had a solution which didn't seem right to me. And Sony had this vision that seemed right to him, and I had a different one. And I was saying, Sony, this is why your way won't work. And he looks at me with this little smile, and he goes, because I was saying, like, dude, this is like my universe. Like, this is why it won't work, right? Because it had to do with something that I'm very, very familiar with. And he goes, an expert is somebody who can tell you how things can't be done. And I was like, ah, oh. <laughs> like it's so true. Yeah. And it just like really hit me. That's the fucking trap. That's how people fall into it. All the stuff that I know stops me from even pursuing avenues that I think I have like an immediate reason why that avenue will fail. And because I, I think I'm saving myself and other people the wasted time of going down that path, I shut the door on what may be the single most brilliant idea, right? And it comes from a good place. I didn't want them to waste time. Right. So I'm like, guys, look, I already know why. I've gone down that path and here's like how it's going to fail. And so when Sony said that, it just like brought it all back to me. This is how people get themselves in trouble. This is why you have to get out of your area of expertise. This is why you have to reinvent yourself. And I've done it unintentionally. Mm -hmm. It's all just been like, I'm trying to serve my goals. And one of my goals, or I should, the goals that I've had, the times that I've reinvented myself, is because that goal was just outside of what I already knew. So it is a very, very powerful concept. I think people should, and this I'll say to myself as much as anybody else, like in certain intervals, you should force yourself to learn something new, 100%. I can't remember who was asking me something sort of tangential to this, and my answer was, go get really good at something that right now you know nothing about. Because in like exposing yourself to something radically different that you have to go through that very arduous process of learning about, it, it will give you, they, I think they were a writer or something, and they were like, I'm in a rut, like I've been just writing the same kind of stuff. And I was like, you need to get, don't even think about writing for a second. Go learn something else totally unrelated and get really good at that thing. You will be shocked at how that feeds back into your writing. Hmm. Like move to a different country. Like that new perspective would just shake everything up for you. So it's one thing to learn something new. It's another to like change careers or totally reinvent your life. Do you think yeah. people should be intentional about, intentional about that? Yes, definitely. And I, be honest. Like other than your career... 
Is there anything that you have the impetus to get that good at? No, right? right. It's all because it's all on the line and you're doing it anyway and you're there every day and so you've gotta be so good to not lose your job. I mean, that, that's just the reality for most people is your job is going to dictate the skill set that you acquire. And if you don't then change up either what you're doing within that company or change companies, like you're never going to have the incentive to learn something new. That, that really scares me. Right now I'm overcome with an overwhelming sense of sadness for people that live their whole life like that. That is, that's unbearable to me to know that that exists. Yeah. And that's where most people live their lives. That's really sad. And with that, we are out of time for After Impact today. <laughs> On that note. <laughs> On that note. Good. I'll go curl up in a, the fetal <laughs> position and suck my thumb for a while at the thought of how many people are going to spend their entire lives. Or you could rewatch the Bassam Yusuf episode on 2X and be inspired and go out there and be hungry. A much better solution. Yep. A much better solution. Thank you, my friend. All right, guys. Thank you so much for joining us. And to everybody on YouTube Live, man, thank you guys for showing up. And to the entire community for writing in, for wanting to be acknowledged. That is absolutely incredible. Uh, insanely honored by every single person in this community. It means the absolute world. For those that joined me in London recently at the um, meet and greet, the nine-hour record-setting Q&A, Thank you guys so much. That was a lot, a lot of fun, and I'm honored by your time. If you guys haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. And if this content is delivering value to you, please go to iTunes, go to Stitcher, rate and review us. That helps us build this community, and that is what we are all about right now building this community as big as we can to help as many people as we can deliver as much value as possible. And you guys rating and reviewing really helps with that. All right, guys, thank you again so much. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care.